another one of the things that I keep hearing about planning permission is when you're applying for something like an extension or maybe even a self-build to apply for more than what you need. Is that a good tactic? No, I hear it, I hear it all the time. Hi Chris, how are you doing? I'm very well, Josh, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, Pleasure. Yeah, so just um, to start, could you just introduce yourself and um, tell us a bit about what you do? Yeah, I will try. I'm not a big fan of blowing trumpets. Uh, so uh, my name is Chris Whitehouse. I am a Chartered Planning and Development Surveyor. Uh, yeah. Many people don't know what that means. Uh, it means that I'm a Chartered Surveyor who decided to practice planning, planning policy, planning law as my specialism. Um, I uh, became chartered in 2010 uh, and subsequently set up, decided to set up my own practice in 2011, um, a practice that I've run since Next Phase. Um, and we are town planning, uh, a town planning consultancy who specializes in tricky planning, uh, large scale major applications. Um, small scale, very tricky and troublesome applications uh, and appeals uh, in, in the appeal system. So I've been doing that since since 2011. Um, yeah, and continue to battle with the system every day. Lovely. <laughs> um, and you mentioned just before something about um, Grand Designs. What do you do with, with Grand Designs? Uh, so I work as a planning consultant for them, essentially. Um, so I uh, On their Grand Designs live schedule, uh, which runs across the year, both in terms of sort of two very large exhibitions that take place in, in London and Birmingham, um, and also sort of as, a, as an online uh, platform throughout the year. I work for Grand Designs as uh, as their planning mouth, mouthpiece, so to speak. So I provide um, advice to them and to uh, people that subscribe to, to, to the Grand Designs um, live system uh, across the year through seminars, talks, etc. Um, at the Grand Designs live shows, I do the the, the access for ask the expert is for me to say, uh, show where I where people can book appointments and discuss their planning cases, and then I also do uh, sort of live talks at the events as well. One of the questions that we try and always ask, just because I think there's a bit of a um, everyone's got a bit of a slightly different uh, viewpoint on it, is how would you just define what what a self builder is? Oh. Um, so I suppose, from my perspective, uh, in the planning, in the planning, I work in the dry planning sector. So unfortunately, I have I have to consider the most tedious aspect of any self build, which is planning policy, you know, and, and how that treats planning applications, etc. Which is slightly more uh, dry and wordy than you know the, the more exciting stuff like finding sites and architectural design. So in my world, self build is defined by way of the self-building custom home building act right which again sorry for laying on policy yeah. but it, it is essentially someone who um uh de decides to take a plot of land uh and, and build a property on them for themselves but whether that be uh through a one-off sort of bespoke design so as to be uh, entirely self-build in its nature or whether to take something off the peg that someone else has designed and to build it on that land which is which is custom build and in, and in planning terms Although they're given two separate definitions, self-build and custom-build, they are actually classed as the same thing in terms of how they're treated. 
so yeah, my my response to that, unfortunately, is heavily caveated by by planning. But it's yeah, it's any it's anyone that is essentially looking to build a property for themselves, one way or another. Yeah, I was gonna. I think you might have answered it already, but I was gonna say you mentioned um, the difference between you know someone designing their own house and then maybe having something that somebody's already pre-designed. I was gonna ask if if there's a which is easier to get through planning, or, but it, uh, well, neither. Yeah, there's, there's no there's no um the, the, every so every planning case is different and every and this is one of the things i'm sure we'll come on to in that um it's often push and pull so when it comes to a planning application you're working with policies not laws so you're working with the weight and interpretation of different policies in different areas and how they can apply and how you can shape your case around them and, and in support of them but when it comes to self-build and custom build ultimately um, they're both treated in the same way. You know, they are um, they are distinct from a standard property in the in a, in the planning sense, um, but their distinction uh, sort of starts and ends with the fact that they are bespokely being built for one person. Um, so, in, in terms of improving your planning case, for example, um, in most cases there is no difference between um, building something completely bespoke for yourself and, and taking something. Uh, they may have some of the similar characteristics in terms of green principles, etc. Um, but but it's taken sort of from a modular developer, so to speak. Okay, cool. So you must have worked with quite a few self builders in your time, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, just a few. Um, so the uh, the um, I'd say over over the sort of second half of. The decade or so the we've managed next phase self-build has become more prevalent yeah i think clearly that's off the back of legislation that came in you know custom home building access etc the original aspirations of the localism bill to try and push self-building the requirement for local authorities to keep a register of interested self-builders i think that that naturally that in conjunction i think with um, a lot of social media platforms um you know a lot of um the existing sort of home building magazine type uh, type businesses, sort of bringing it sort of to the forefront of people's minds in conjunction with, you know, obviously programs like Grand Designs um, have made it more and more popular. And so because it's, because it's become more popular and it's become more accessible to more people, um, both in terms of finance and plot finding, et cetera, it's become more common. Um, and 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 that's a good thing, right? So the yeah. the system should, as far as possible, try and cater for you know people's individual needs, and that's what self built does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How much of a how much of a difference have you seen? So in the last ten years, was there a certain year that it just boomed? Or yeah, I, I think um, I think sort of two thousand and fifteen. There's yeah. a, there's a big kick up in terms of in terms of interest in them for for a few reasons. I think when I first came into practice. Um, self-build was done. It's not as if it just existed. No, of course, yeah, numbers, yeah. But it was, but it was more limited, and it was it was limited for uh, for numerous reasons. But um, one, it was expensive, so yeah. there's a there's a much uh, there wasn't the sort of accessibility to self-build finance that there is now at that point. Um, so you're generally looking at um, developers, either developers who are prepared to take the risk for themselves to build something bespoke, or you're uh, talking about um, uh, people with the capital to be able to build something themselves. So uh, perhaps people that are downsizing and looking to build something bespoke, sort of um, 
I always reference, again, we don't want to harp on about grand design, so I always reference, if you look at the profile of people that are doing bespoke buildings in the earlier series and the last ones, yeah. there's a generational difference in the main. Definitely, yeah. Either you've got um, old generations or um, affluent individual people doing it in the earlier series where you have more uh, sort of the, the, the general cross-section of society in the later series doing it. Yeah. So I, th I think it was, I think it was about 2015 and it just coincided, as, as these things always do, they coincide with uh, public knowledge uh, of, of the option, legislation that's kind of supports it in principle, and then examples. So, you know, you have the, um, uh, you have the, uh, the, the new uh, town villages being built in, in, um, you know, the M40 corridors, for example, that, uh, provide a physical example of how self-built could work in quite a substantial measure. And then off the back of it, you had sort of um, well, magazines like Home Building and Renovating really pushing it as sort of a central focus of their of their, uh, of their sort of ethos of what they wanted to you know, present to their readership. So I think it was just a combination of factors that really pushed it in 2015. But clearly, it's, it was these combination of factors mixed with, um, you know, perhaps it, perhaps it a different take on on how people wanted to start living their lives um, off the back of years and years of um, substantial uh, house building. So building estates that are similar and similar and similar and similar, and there being no end to that development. Um, in combination with, um, I, I, can, I think that there was quite a big degree of reflection for a certain generation off the back of the recession. Uh, so off the back of the 2009 period, I think that a lot of people started to reassess how they wanted to live. Um, uh, and if they were lucky enough to have the capital to be able to push to uh, to create something, you know, for the future and sort of future proof them, especially with green principles and people starting to do that. And that snowballed into legislation in 2015. So since that point in time, it's been quite commonplace because most planning policies in most local planning authorities recognize self-build as a as an individual um, as an individual aspect to any planning place. So um, when that's the case and there's more opportunity to get planning permission for it, it becomes more popular. Yeah. Um, so having worked with your fair share of self-builders, what's like kind of the is there a main gripe? Is there a one thing that keeps popping up that's like kind of like the biggest challenge in terms of getting planning uh yes um uh, so it's, it's a general risk of planning anyway yeah the so i think the biggest gripe for self-builders is is probably the disconnect between what the policy says it's going to deliver yeah. and what it actually delivers yeah so uh national policy uh whether it be the original act whether it be the national planning policy framework and that, that's filtered down the requirements of that are filtered down into local plans in local authority areas as they've as they've developed yeah. over the past five or six years and in each of those areas there is in in word form at least uh, an identification that self-build should play an important part to house building within that, within that area there's a uh, there's a recognition that there's a requirement to keep a register and there's a recognition that there's a requirement to try and identify sites for self-build yeah. Um, but I think most self-builders would agree that the register and the um, availability of sites that the councils look after is more or less non-existent. Um, so the, the disconnect really comes in the fact that 
self builders are possibly having to work harder than they would expect to have to in order to find a site that in principle works for them. Um, and then two, it's much more difficult to get planning permission for it than the aspirations the policy seeks to address in the first instance. So some self builders are, I'd say, I'm not going to say lucky, but some self builders are well organized, diligent, and have um, you know, managed to take advantage of um, certain situations with certain sites and are able to get planning permission in a relatively straightforward way. Um, but in a lot of cases, a lot of people come out of the planning at the planning end of a self-build application, whether they've been successful or not, and feel pretty bruised by it. Yeah. Um, and I think so. I think the biggest the biggest gripe is definitely that disconnect between what they what the local authorities in the central say they want to achieve and what is actually achieved having gone through a fairly painful process to get there in the first instance. So it's um yeah unfortunately I think I think that's the biggest gripe self-building. Yeah. yeah. Um the one that I've um come across a few times um is people having um inquiring about land or putting in a plan and application that on a piece of land that has already had a building built on it and then they get back that no actually now it, it it can't because it's all you know derelict and is that is that something that you come across a lot yeah yeah so so as a as a starting point you would always say to uh, to a potential self-builder, if they're looking for a parcel of land, that as a starting point, if that land is is outside of the set the defined settlements of a city, town, or village, so yeah. if it's outside of that sort of um, imaginary red line that gets wrapped around these these areas, to say that the presumption is in favour of delivery, because that's where housing should, pretty uh, in the main, be delivered. Then outside of those areas, you are always taking the planning risk. Yeah. Um, because the presumption sits against you getting planning permission unless you're able to demonstrate that the benefits outweigh the negatives, what we call yeah. planning balance. Yeah. Um, and the planning balance always sits against, it's quite difficult to overcome. So, uh, but a lot of the time, without wishing to um, to, to, to treat all self-builders the same, a lot of the time self-builders want a green space. So they're, 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 they're want, they want a plot and they want to yeah. build something into a plot. And, and often that, through uh, availability and cost uh, and and tightness of settlement boundaries, you know, they tend to gravitate towards land outside of settlements. So when you're in that position, the advice really is always, you know, one, one of the key aspects of finding an ideal plot is always that to try and find sites that are being previously developed or uh, are not completely untouched in terms of their in terms of their history. Um, so that naturally means that self-builders will gravitate towards sites that have got hard standing on yeah. or have had buildings on them previously or they've got a, a, you know, a knackered old barn on them that's about to fall down. Um, and in principle, that's the right way to go. The, I think the thing that is quite commonplace is that when you get to that position, um, a planning argument that is prepared to a local planning authority will be based upon the assumption that the land is previously developed and therefore it should be available to be developed again. Yeah. Where in a substantial amount of those cases, the land has not been developed sufficiently so as to be classed as brownfield land, for example, or its um, previous development historically, let's say it had a house on that fell down 20 years ago, you can still see some of the footings there, for example. Um, it's been uh, not lawfully used for that use for a, for a period of time that means it can no longer be treated for that use, or the uh, 
the hard standing, the foundations, etc., of what we call amalgamated back into the landscape, which means that they've essentially been overtaken by by weeds and shrubs and stuff, so that so they now form part of the landscape rather than actual function. Yeah. Um, and that means that a lot of self-build applications actually fail because they've gone in with their planning case on the assumption that they should get planning permission, and that's a starting point because they consider the site to be brownfield. But in a lot of those cases, the sites aren't brownfield. They and, and through one avenue or another, they are treated still as as greenfield land. The difference being is it's greenfield land that has previously uh, contributed to the built, to sort of the, the visual built vista of that countryside, which means yeah. its sensitivity to development is lower than if it hadn't been built before. But nonetheless, that's still not a substantial enough planning argument to get planning permission. In that circumstance, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, well, this part of land is still in the open countryside, you know, the presumption against planning permission is still there, but it's not as impactful a site than the field up the road, which has never been built on. Yeah. You know, it's completely isolated. And by comparison, it's less impactful. So in, in, a, in an argument where you have to provide planning balance, and that is to show that the benefits of the scheme outweigh the negatives, it allows you, that position allows you to reduce down the amount of weights that can be given to the inappropriateness of the land. So it's, um, it catches a lot of self-builders out. The, the, they go in, expect it to be brownfield, and are essentially just concentrating on the design and the impact of the design. But in reality, there needs to be what there needs to be a step back, and it needs the, the dry planning argument first needs to show that okay, well, it's not brownfield, but on balance, um, the benefits afforded to the development when you give them individual weight outweighs how inappropriate the development is. So it's, it's a, it is a very common uh, uh, common occurrence that as a as a as a reason for refusal. Yeah. Awesome. That was a really long-winded explanation. I apologise, no, it's, no. it's not a simple answer. <laughs> no, well, so so this is why we wanted you on the podcast is because planning is is not simple. <laughs> it's not, um, which is um, why your business exists, obviously. Um, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest, Josh, I prefer it to be more simple. It would, it would <laughs> and, yeah. and and still be have a business. I'll be I'll be frank with you, but yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah. Is there is there a reason that it's so you know seen as so tricky? Is it just because people don't have you know someone like you kind of holding their hand through the process? Or well, it, I think it would be it would be easy enough for me to turn around and say, well, if you've got a planning consultant or one that's good enough, then all your problems will disappear. But I think no. that's I think it would be too egotistical a position for me to take. To be honest, I think that's yeah. not quite accurate. Albeit that having a planning consultant in your corner. It helps massively in terms of your chance to get planning permission. Yeah. Um, that's not me being biased, such as fact. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of why is, the, why is the process so tricky? Um, I think I could cover that off in a six-hour podcast, but I'll, I'll try and I'll try and summarize it as best I can. <laughs> um, it's it's multiple factors. Okay, so it's it's um, it's 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 from uh, the pr the planning process itself through to the um, the the, reason, the the democratic approach to why planning is the way it is right the way to the the, the, the fundamental sort of um, control of planning policy from central government in this country. I think in summary, what you'd say is it is a system that is um, that has to be based upon subjectivity. Okay, so planning policy isn't law. I've said this already. It's yeah. not black and white. It has to be determined based upon 
the, the individual characteristics of each individual site within the context of its location, which means that in principle, every individual site, whether that be uh, a self-built plot or whether that be a terraced house in a row of six terraced houses, yeah. is completely is treated completely independently to its next door neighbours. And the reason for that is quite straightforward in that every property has slightly different characteristics to each other. It may, it may, you know, that terrace house example may, may be uh, a situation where the houses themselves look the same, but they are sited in different locations within the street. Their relationship with neighbouring properties is different by comparison to each other. Yeah. And so I always use that as sort of the broadest example of why every application has to be treated differently and has to be treated independently. So because of that, it's impossible to create a set of laws yeah. to cover off every single difference with every single property. I mean, it would be, I have to deal with enough paperwork as it is, it'd be ridiculous to have to deal with that many. So what you have instead is, is uh, guidance. So you have planning policy, which gives an overarching expectation of development. And then, it, but it gives you the opportunity to um, to weight that, to show uh, other benefits that can that can outweigh it, to push and to pull the relevance of each of the individual policies. Um, and then it gives you the, the that process allows for uh, democracy to play a part, right? Which is the ability for your neighbours to object, for the highways authority to object for different reasons, etc., and for uh, you know for local planning committees made of politicians to make all decisions on cases. Yeah. Um, my point is that planning is difficult from that sense because it's all subjective. So it's all based off on subjectivity. And when you've got a, a system that is based within some re relatively loose um, parameters in terms of how an application is submitted, how it should be determined, yeah. when everything else is subjective, it means that there's a whole host of variables that can take place within each and every case. So, um, that's why technically, when it comes to a planning application, precedent doesn't exist. So you can't make use of saying, okay, well, Jim up the road got planning permission for X. Yeah. And so I should get it as well. Um, it doesn't exist because each of these cases has to be treated differently and at that point in time. So that the subjective element of planning makes it difficult. Uh, it means that you it's a, it's a completely different system to, to anything else really in, in the UK insofar as you can't enter it with an exact understanding of how it's going to go um you can make uh and you can be guided by professionals you can make a very legitimate uh assessment of risk uh, and prepare a case accordingly um, but, but it's not a case of okay if you do a and b you're going to equal c it's not the way it works yeah so i think i think that makes it difficult and then what makes it what exacerbates that what makes it worse is the lack of funding into local authorities that clearly makes it worse so um for years has been and i appreciate this this occurs across all um local government sectors um it's not just planning um but for years and especially since 2009 and, and the subsequent cuts by the coalition government um local planning authorities are just hugely under budgeted uh yeah. under, underserved um the outcome of that is uh, in the in the longer term that it's very difficult for local planning authorities to retain staff because the private sector will pay more. Um, and the result of that is that the quality of decision making is um, is is uh, sort of less at uh, a lower quality. It's a lower quality than it should be. Yeah. Most I think I think it's a fairly standard 
consideration that local planning officers, the, the, the average profile of a local planning officer is um, overworked, a lot, of, yeah. a lot of cases to manage, relatively stressed, and very little time to spend on each yeah. and every one. Decision fatigue. Yeah. So the, I think it's a, it's a combination of these factors. And, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that people's individual um, individual sort of um, issues that they've had with planning applications are acceptable in those circumstances. Because a lot of people come away feeling frustrated by the lack of ability to pick the phone up to the case office, for example. Yeah, and, and that's fair enough. There is still issues in terms of sort of the approach that's taken to communication. But I think there's some, there is just these wider issues in terms of the entire system. And the, the long-term knock-on effect has been, being a, you know, a, a practicing owner of a, of a business, um, it's not an attractive industry to get into, which means that there isn't a huge amount of uptake of, uh, of, of younger people undertaking town planning or similar courses at university and then, you know, bolstering the system over time, yeah. such as what appears to be a lack of job satisfaction, <laughs> um, that people just aren't interested in, in getting involved. So this is creating further issues. Um, so yeah, that's it. But well, I kept that about a five minute explanation, which I think is the shortest explanation I've ever given to why the planning system is so stressful. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a combination of lack of uh, lack of explicitness with regard to what is acceptable and what is not, mixed with um, uh, a lack of sort of uh, underpinning of the of the office of, of the decision maker, and that that creates a, a whole host of issues, and and obviously as with it, planning risk. Yeah, it's interesting because another one of the um, I I just had a, a few of the common um, you know things that you hear about planning permission that I wanted to just talk to you about, and another one of them that you kind of touched on is like for either like extensions on an existing house or um things like that so if someone's like renovated their their on, on the same street as renovated their loft into a, a bedroom or something and you can see it from the outside you go oh well maybe we might do that and then you apply for pattern and then you don't get it so it is interesting how it all works but that actually um makes a lot of sense is that obviously they're in different positions and then each each case is its own yeah it's i mean that's not to say that the that there isn't a, there isn't the ability to understand the general pattern of how applications will be treated in the certain area. So it's that's what again, without wishing to to press the requirement of planning consultants too much, because a lot of architects can do the same thing. And in a lot of circumstances, the architect as, as the central professional is the most cost efficient way of undertaking any of these works. Yeah. Um, but you can you can often in the very short term you can often see the way the local planning authority is treating specific policy within an area, and you can come to a very reasoned uh, position on how they would treat that planning application. But the the one thing that I think should never be done is just to submit an application blindly uh, based upon what's been done up the street because I think that's when uh, I think that's when um, the expectation of the applicant is. Uh, it is is not met, right? So that's when most disappointment occurs. Uh, it's when they haven't gone through that process of understanding the, the, the challenges or the risks from, from day one. Um, and that, that's why I would say just, even if it's the most basic application, even if you're looking to just build a, you know, a dorm room extension, for example, yeah, just take half a day just to speak to a planning consultant or an architect and, and understand where the risk lies. Um, because in the long term, that's probably going to be more cost efficient. Yeah. Another one of the things that I keep hearing about um, planning permission 
is um, when you're applying for something like an extension or maybe even a self-build um, to apply for more than what you need. So kind of like shoot for the moon, aiming, uh, you, you know, you'll land in the stars. Um, or, or, or this is gonna, we're gonna need eight meters for this. So let's ask for 10 or 12 and just see if, see if that works. Is, is that a good tactic? No, I hear it, I hear it all the time. I feel, I feel like that's been around longer than my age in terms of, a, in terms of an appropriate tactic to, to take forward in a, in a flying application. It doesn't, it doesn't work for it. So let me, let me just caveat this. Yeah. It used to work. Yeah. So it, it would work in an age where in a, in a six or an eight week planning application, you can expect to speak to the planning officer on the phone in a sort of semi-casual manner, at least four or five times across that period. But you can, uh, when I first started in practice, um, you could pick a phone to the case officer, have it submit a planning application two or three times, you know, across an application period, speak for half an hour at a time and, and literally over the phone, iron out all the issues with the case, uh, agree, negotiate on those changes, etc., cetera, uh, and get something more or less across the line. Not every time, but, you know, more or less across the line. Yeah. Um, that's changed for, for, that doesn't work anymore for a few reasons. Uh, firstly, so the more basic explanation is the fact that the ability to pick the phone up to the case officer for, for smaller cases or you know, more individual cases these days is more or less non-existent yeah. uh, for, for multiple reasons. But uh, local authorities have essentially, by way of budget cuts again, they have, they have stripped away the ability to speak to the officer. It becomes more and more difficult, um, whether, whether it be simply a case of the, the officer doesn't have a phone number anymore, uh, whether it be that um, you can respond only in email, whether it be that um, you have to sort of pre-schedule a, a request for a callback. But more importantly, there is no, and I think this is often not understood, there is no legislation to force a case officer to discuss the case with you. Yeah. Their requirements are that the, uh, the council needs to determine the case, but they don't need to determine the case in discussion or in negotiation. The idea is that the application should be in its fullest form day one and that should allow the the, the the officer to make a determination having gone through statutory consultation with neighbors with third parties etc um so that means that in reality our ability to sort of force the arm of the case officer to say pick the phone up we need yeah. to discuss it, it it doesn't exist so if it, so if a council does take the route where they say no we need to prioritize having our officers behind the computer writing the reports rather than discussing the case with you, then they will go through processes to make it very difficult for you to have those conversations. So I think the, um, uh, I'll just to add, whilst the planning consultant can assist in that scenario, yeah. um, that's the general the general thing. So in that, in that's one of the reasons why that process doesn't work. The ability to uh, communicate with the officer effectively during the application is substantially reduced from how it used to be. Yeah. The second aspect is, that planning applications have to be way more front-loaded than they than they have after in the past. So there is a requirement to make all sorts of environmental legislation at day one. There's a requirement to be very accurate in terms of the both the impacts of development and how the development will look, how it will relate to the surrounding area, all at day one. So again, back in I'm not going to say the good old days in previous in the previous in the previous era. Yeah. There used to be a requirement whereby you get a planning application through and then a vast majority of the other aspects would be addressed by way of planning conditions. So you, you have to address those issues either as you go, as you're building, 
or before you can actually make a start. But more importantly, you do them with the comfort knowledge that you have planning permission to hand. So whether that be flood risk assessments, protected species reports, highways plans, whatever they are, you do them with the comfort of knowledge and having the permission there. Yeah. These days it's flipped. So most of the time, through various environmental acts, there's a requirement for an authority to know the impact that a development will have on air quality, on noise, on flood risk, on surface water drainage, the list goes on, yeah. before they can issue a decision. And so um, how does that relate to your question? Well, they, they, I'm getting there, don't worry. The, um, the, the point is that your application has to pretty much be as completely well-rounded as it can be from day one. So it yeah. needs to be, it needs to have answered all the questions before they're asked. It's another thing that often comes up in terms of the things I say to people, answer the questions before they're asked. And so because your application has to be completely well-rounded and answer all the questions before they're asked on day one, it gives you less room for manoeuvre for maneuver on negotiating the size of a scheme afterwards, for example. Because what, you, what you've said to a local authority is the scheme at day one is the appropriate scheme. This is the scheme that should be supported, and these are the reasons why. So if you then go through a process and say, actually, you know, we would accept a smaller scheme or we would accept a revised scheme, you're stepping away from that position. And not only are you stepping away from that position and that position of conviction, you're then also in that application period have to go back and make all the relevant revisions to all those individual reports and change in the nature of the process. So um, for those two reasons, lack of communication with an officer and the requirements to be as front-loaded as possible in the case, I would never, ever recommend to an applicant to say, oh, right, you know what, go in with this, but in the broad assumption that you never know, you might get that through. Yeah. Um, but if not, we'll try and negotiate for this instead because you don't have the time and the, the minute that you seek to provide a concession is the minute that you're essentially saying that your original case wasn't as strong as you presented it as being. And that will have an impact on where the case is managed. So it doesn't, it doesn't happen. Yeah, there are there are there are occasions where an officer will turn around, for example, in smaller schemes and say, okay, well, if you change the roof type on this, if you relocate windows, then we'll accept it. Um, and then it's and then it's a decision for the client and their architect to see whether that can be done within the time frame to get that back in. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately, those big issues, those those ones that will affect the case, um, they need to be right at day one. And if they're not, the, the, the council will, will not be minded to give you the opportunity to correct them. Um, so yeah, that, that's my, again, long-winded answer. No, no, that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, so obviously when you're starting kind of on your self-build journey and you're looking for pieces of land, that's kind of probably one of like the mo more exciting times um, when you're um, you know, just getting started coming up with the ideas and everything like that. Is there anything that you would kind of recommend people keep an eye out for when you're, you're looking at the first kind of stages of you know, um, looking, finding, to, finding a parcel of land? The, um, it's a, it's a two-part question, one part I can't answer, and that is where do you find the land? Because yeah, ultimately, that's, for me, that's an impossible question. If I try to help people with land agency, I'd just never sleep. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's, for that sort of question, it's using local land agents, it's seeing what, you know, what land is for sale, it's, it's literally knocking on doors of landowners and asking those questions, it's, you know, it's putting, putting the effort in, really. Yeah. In terms of, from the planning side of things, in terms of what people should be looking for, um, that just tend to depend upon the area. 
Yeah. And I think some some very broad overarching themes can be can be brought forward. First is its designations. Okay, so it's the land the land itself. Uh, if you if you simply look at the statistics of planning application commissions, uh, if the land is in what we call designated open countryside, which is land that sits outside of a defined settlement, so there's in a, in a city, towns, and villages, but is not designated by any by any other legislation. Statistically, you've got a greater chance of getting planning permission on that land than if the land is in greenbelt, designated greenbelt land, which is given greater protection, or it's in an area of outstanding natural beauty where the land is given greater visual protection. So I think even if you just look at the broad statistics, that's going to point you in the direction. In terms of how to do that, uh, I always recommend that um, if you're looking at a target area, you go onto the local planning authority's website in the planning section, go on their planning policy, and there's usually some sort of interactive map that shows the broader designations of countryside outside of outside of um, uh, these settlement boundaries. That's the starting point. The second point is sustainability. And um, by that, I don't mean green principles. I mean the closeness of the land to local services facilities. Yeah. So the broad rule of thumb is, if you can take advantage of a city or town or villages, schools, shops, etc., without a definitive need to get in the car to take advantage of them, then that is more sustainable than if the if it requires you to get in the car and drive for five minutes to get there. Yeah. So um, being as close to those settlement boundaries as possible, and for there to be a very clear um, sort of pedestrian pathway or delineation to that area is quite important. And then physically on the ground is the third one, really, and that is sort of what is on the site. You know, if, if there's hard standing on the site, if there's a building on the site, most circumstances that's going to be helpful. Yeah. Um, if there is uh, an existing access to the site, that's going to be very helpful. And if the land physically uh, can, can provide for a house, whether that be through uh, its topography, whether that be through um, the, the natural screening, the mesa surround site, you know, maybe tree cover that's very helpful. Um, if you can physically provide a house that doesn't create a substantial impact on the openness of the land beyond it, that's also going to be helpful. So if, if you look at that sort of the three broadest statistics of, of what will get you planning permission and not self-build, it's those three aspects. It's, it's designation, it's sustainability, and it's the physical um, uh, availability of the, of the land to, to, to site a house on. We are smashing these questions. It's really helpful. You're asking, you're doing, you're doing what you were um, recommending people to um, to do and answering questions before they're asked. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, I think it's well, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I think it's a responsibility of of. Uh, it's, I try not to be patronising with this stuff because I think it's um, it's it's in, it's a two way conversation between an applicant and a consultant in terms yeah. of these things. But my advice to my clients is always the same. Uh, it's up to between us. It's up to us to identify the cost and risk of anything you do. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, the decision lies with the applicant. Right. So the applicant has to be comfortable. The self builder in this instance has to be comfortable that okay, we're comfortable that the planning risk, the chance of us getting planning permission, against the cost of undertaking that work, and yeah, this particular cost of this land holding in question is all worth it. We can we can comfortably recognize and take forward that risk uh, and everyone's risk level is different right? everyone's aptitude for risk is, is completely different so it's a very personal decision on whether that works but it, there's always risk involved there's no guarantees in 
So, uh, so when I say answer questions before they're asked, in one hand, that's how you shape a planning case. But on the other hand, it's making sure that you as the individual, before you undertake a self-build, uh, has answered as many questions as possible to answer the question of, can we take on this risk? Um, so it's a two-way street, that, that answer before you ask uh, elements of it, but it's, it's essential, essential for any self-build case. So in terms of kind of prep and being in like the best standing, do you guys do anything um, you know, like pre-application kind of stuff that, that, that would help people be in the best standing before actually like, you know, pulling the trigger kind of thing. Yep, so um, so obviously next phase is our day-to-day town planning practice. That's, that's where we prepare and manage planning applications and planning appeals, that's what, that's what, we, that's what we do. Yeah. Uh, but last year, um, after spending a year sort of preparing a system, we set up, a private pre-application process. It's called pre-app, so yeah. it's nice and easy for people to remember. Um, and the, the requirement was there, really. So more and more local planning authorities are struggling to keep up the demand placed upon them. Yeah. And they, they provide pre-application services, but they're not, they, they charge a fee for it as, yeah. uh, you know, as a consumer to a business, but they're not regulated to provide the information within a statutory period of time. Yeah. So what was happening more and more, because authorities are getting more and more stretched, is that people are paying for pre-apps for yeah. a householder extension or a self-build or a new residential estate. Yeah. And they're paying quite an expensive fee to, to do it. Uh, and they're not getting a response back for months and months and months on end. Um, and when they do get a response, they're getting a pretty sort of um, copy and pasted response. Yeah, that's not all of them. But a, 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 a reasonable amount of them are getting a fairly substandard response. And um, the feedback that I was getting, the practice was getting, um, when we spoke to clients and we subsequently took on cases for who'd undertaken the pre-app or in meeting people at you know exhibitions and shows, et cetera, for like grand design, was that they felt pretty deflated by the pre-application system, not necessarily the advice, but the way that the system worked insofar as they'd lost months, if not years of the process, trying to understand how a local authority sat. So I felt that there was room to improve that system insofar as ultimately, uh, town planning professionals who work in the private sector know as well as local planning authority planners what the likelihood is they're going to give planning permission yeah. because we work in that system. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was all dependent on whether we could come up with a system that makes it very easy for people to understand their chances of gaining planning permission um, in a in a quicker time frame and cheaper. So what we did was we spent a year in R&D and we created a system that covers off all local planning authorities in England and Wales. And it's a it's a essential online app that um, is constantly updated from our end, constantly updated by, by decisions of local planning authorities in individual areas, the timeframes taking them to make decisions and the policies that are considered the most relevant to individual cases. Yeah. And that data is constantly being updated because it's public available data. Yeah. Um, and what happens is when people use our system, uh, which is a preapp.co.uk, they use the system uh, and within three days, they're getting the response back. They fill in a questionnaire. They uh, upload any photographs and plans they also want to upload. 
And what they what they do is they get a response back in three days. And that, that response is made up of two separate things. It's made up of uh, the data analysis of decision-making within their area. So statistically, what are the chances of getting planning permission broadly in your area? Um, what affects the chance of getting planning permission? And what are, the what are the average timeframes that are taking place? So you can understand, okay, well, in reality, no matter what is said, for example, 65% of applications within Croydon Council, I'll just pick one around them, yeah. um, get a householder planning consent and it takes it, although the time frame says it takes six weeks, in reality, it actually takes 8.3 weeks. So you're getting that data-driven position, but then you're also getting that reviewed by a planning professional. So a planning professional then reviews the case and sees where the strengths and weaknesses lie of that case by comparison to the average of the area, how the case can be improved, uh, and a recommendation on, on whether uh, pre-app considers that you'll get planning permission or not. So what you end up with is a sort of a singular sheet full of multiple different avenues of information. But the key one is, what's the average success getting planning permission for that type of area? What are your chances based on your scheme of getting planning permission? And if uh, you take on board the recommendations that pre says you should take on, does that improve your chances? So you're giving people in 72 hours, you're giving people the advice, the ultimate advice that they require, um, and it's taking months to get. Um, and it's relatively cheap, right? So our, our fees are uh, 90 quid plus VAT for the household scheme. Yeah. And it's 100, uh, remember in the software, 145 quid plus VAT for, um, for sort of self build cases for applications. Uh, and that, on average, that's about 30% of the cost of undertaking the same service with a local particle authority. So um, we feel that the system doesn't need to be as complex as it is in terms of giving people a degree of certainty. Yeah. Um, and certainly it doesn't need to be expensive as it is. So yeah, so preapp.co.uk exists for that entire reason. And it's proven to be very successful and keeps us all very busy. Awesome, that's good, that's good news. <laughs> um, I've got one more question that I wanted to ask you. And it was, um, if someone was to come up with, to you and say, I think I wanna build my own house um, and I've never done it before, what would your advice to them be? Learn as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Uh, learn through case examples in the area that you want to live in, not through aspirational examples in glossy magazines. Yeah. Um, do as much due diligence as you can do on cost and risk, and try and undertake as much as that as you possibly can before you uh, before you start getting advice from from professionals. So the easiest way to do that is. Uh, Go on your local authority's planning website and look at planning applications that have been determined. They're all there. It's all it's all publicly available to review. Yeah. So you can start to understand what type of applications get approved, how they get treated, and and, and give you some guidance on what you should, what you kind of can't do. So it's, it's it's I think it's all about um, understanding personally undertake undertaking the degree of due diligence um, to understand the risk associated with your case. Because as soon as you've got those parameters right in your head in terms of the level of risk, then you can start to make reasonable uh, insertions into taking the case forward. So um, that's, I, I think the answer should be perhaps a bit more snappy than that, but it's essentially undertake as much due diligence as possible. That's awesome. No, that's, that's good advice. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, and if, if anyone wants to kind of get in touch uh, in regard, regards to their planning applications, how, how do they do that? Uh, well, twofold. So uh, for pre-app advice, you can visit pre-app.co.uk. 
Yeah. Uh, if you require some help with your planning case, so you're, yeah. you're getting sort of involved in the actual planning application process itself, you can visit our website at nextphase.dev, D-E-V, or you can email us at mail at nextphase.dev. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, Josh.